I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the 102nd episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Dastin, and myself, Justin Bua. Uh, today, we are doing Jackson Pollock, and Jackson Pollock is a polarizing artist for me, and I just learned uh, our sound engineer, the guy running the show here, Manny Danger, he said... Oh, you're doing Jackson Pollock? And he goes, oh, I hate that guy. I feel so betrayed. Why? Manny? Because I thought that you were always my teammate. And it's only polarizing because I love Jackson Pollock and Justin does not. <laughs> this will be fun. I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, you know, I was re-inspiring myself uh, yesterday, just kind of going through Jackson Pollock. And I told you to check out this documentary, Who the Bleep, it's really Who the Fuck, is Jackson Pollock, but it's, you know, all of the symbology to hide the F-U-C-K word. And it's about this truck driver who finds a Jackson Pollock at a thrift store for $5 and thinks it's a piece of crap, but her friend says, hey, you might want to check out who that is. And she figures out through a long story that this might be an original Jackson Pollock, but she can't prove provenance because the thrift store has burned down. So she goes through all these art history and these art dealers and these experts who are Jackson Pollock experts and collectors. And they are like, no, this doesn't feel like a Jackson Pollock. It isn't a Jackson Pollock. Then she finally hires a forensic scientist from Montreal and him and another person try to legitimize it through science and then she gets offers that she turns down, offers of $2 million, and this lady's living in a trailer park. Anyway, it's amazing because she doesn't even like this piece. She feels akin to how I feel, which is like, I don't even like this piece of crap, but <laughs> I'm trying to sell it because there's so much value I'd there. like to take advantage of this piece exactly, of crap. Exactly, <laughs> right. It's a commodity. But that's really what Pollocks have become this day. And anyway, anybody who hasn't seen Who the Fuck is Jackson Pollock, Who the Bleep is Jackson Pollock, has to check it out. It's one of the greatest documentaries in the art space. And there's some really good ones, but that is definitely one to check out. But Lizzie, look, you and I have talked about Jackson Pollock for a long time, and I don't even, I can't even believe we haven't done an isolated Jackson Pollock-centric episode. But why don't you tell everybody out there why you love Jackson Pollock oh, so God. much? <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay, well, I always like to contextualize things within history and within the spot and the artist's oeuvre. And I think it's really important that we do that with Jackson Pollock because his career has taken such transmutations and evolutions that it's important to familiarize ourselves with the beginnings. So in the 30s, he was actually a social realist painter. He studied with the muralist Thomas Hart Benton, who studied with Diego Rivera. Amazing. And so he's in this lineage of greats who are painting for political social intent. And that is a diametrically opposite style to the drip paintings that we've become used to. So how did he get from painting a mural to painting or splattering on the floor? And I really think it's because after World War II, all of these famed European artists, they had to flee their country of origin to escape fascists and the Nazis. And where did they go? They landed in New York. 
And so these people soon became the teachers of the next generation of American artists, including Jackson Pollock. So all of a sudden, he is exposed to the work of Hans Hoffman, of Duchamp, of these great creative thinkers. And also simultaneously, he's going in therapy and really just immersing himself in the theoretical applications of Carl Jung and this whole idea of the collective unconscious. And so I think that is really what accounts for the aesthetic pivot in his work, where all of a sudden we see these totemic, universal, stylized, attenuated figures creeping up in his work. So we don't see the average everyday American, but all of a sudden these figures that could be Anubis, it could be these spiritual beings. And that leads to the full articulation of his aesthetic self, which was the splatter paintings that he produced in about 1948 to 1952. So I'm, uh, I don't think I've even seen his social realist paintings. Have you seen them? I have. He and his brother were actually really talented. Okay. Well, look, you know, I, and I am a firm believer in any artist that is going to depart uh, into the abstract form, because as we know now, there's a lot of artists who really never learn the basics of draw, you know, of drawing the fundamentals of light logic, of value, of shape, of color, of even figure drawing, classical figure drawing, still lifes, plain air painting. None of that. They skip the basics and they go right to the, you know, they go right to the abstraction, which has become a highly conceptualized world because there's not a lot of teachers that are there. So it's interesting that you said that he was a social realist painting and I painter and I want to look into that. And then you say that there's a next uh, phase of his evolution or how I like to call his de-evolution <laughs> of his artistic uh, prowess. And that is the work starts to become perhaps more elongated and figurative. And those works then transmutate eventually into these energetic splatters of paint. Exactly. It's really because of his contact with the surrealists. And so his social realist work ended up becoming a little bit more intuitive, more instinctual, and more subjective, like a subconscious musing. And then eventually, the figure was eliminated altogether. And it's just the unfettered resources of the mind. And so it really is this beautiful evolution devolution, whatever, whatever well, it is, however way, you see it, it but it's it a progression. Works. Yeah, either way it works. But I, I think, you know, with Jackson Pollock, he's kind of, he's a real sore spot. And for, <laughs> no, he is for a lot of artists. I because, know why. We should talk about that. Well, why I you think, don't like him. Well, I think that's a, I think I am a voice of, uh, you know, I'm a populist in the work that I do. And I feel like I'm a populist in terms of speaking for the common man. I think the common man looks at his work and they go, yeah, you know, I don't understand how that painting could sell for $150 million because it's not fair. It's like, there's almost like a fairness. Like if, if you look at a Bouguereau or you look at a John Singer Sargent or a Rembrandt, you go, oh my God, this person has to be so skillful. Like you can't do that. You know, you can't do that. And I think that the issue is, if we're going to isolate the issue with Pollock, it's like, oh, my kid could do that. You know, that, my neighbor can do that. I could do that. I could take paint and I could splatter it and splatter it and splatter it. Now the question then becomes, of course, mm, you didn't do that right. at the time, right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah, so you didn't do that 
at that time. He was the first to do it. And because he was the first to do it, his work has meaning, especially given the context of his history, his evolution, where he was in the context of art history. But the average person and people also who are artists and and famous artists as well, um, they will tell you, I just feel it's so easy to do that it's unfair. So why is this guy selling his work for $150 million? And I feel like that's good and bad, right? Because in a way, the bad news is that it opened up the door for anybody to do anything and to just sell it and say, oh, my work is also worth that. And I don't really even need to go through the system of learning how to draw, learning how to paint, going through the boot camp of artistic life to get and graduate, right? I mean, you look, you're getting a PhD. Look how much work you've had to go through, how many trials and tribulations and obstacles and studying and tests and examinations you have to go through to get there. But no, I'm going to cut the line because Pollock did it. But look, it was a completely different time and place. So I understand myself as an artist why it's frustrating for artists and for your average person who doesn't like Pollock, I completely get that, and I empathize with that. I also understand that Pollock was the first to the game. He was the first person doing that, and like my friend Jason said, who has a Pollock and a Rothko poster, (laughs) who doesn't even like him, but he goes, you know what, I really like, it just really goes good with my couch. It just goes good with the (laughs) curtains. No, because it is. It's like, whatever it is, you cannot argue if somebody likes it, it's completely subjective because it goes well with the curtains. It goes well with the couch. It looks real. You know, whether it's blue or red, it feels right in the environment. You can't really hang. The average person cannot hang a Rembrandt. It's dark. It's gloomy. It's moody. Is he the greatest painter of all time? Arguably, of course. But that doesn't mean you want to hang it. You might want to hang a Rothko. You might want to hang a Pollock because it's not confrontational. I think that you have efficiently identified most people's issues and frustrations with the Pollock. So I'm really glad that we did that. Yeah. And also you add the price tag of $100 million, $50 million, $150 million. It seems like he's making fun of people. Right. And, and, and people feel slighted like, dude, I've been, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm working on the telephone poles. I'm, I'm risking my life. I'm a coal miner. I'm a, I'm a, I collect garbage, whatever it is. I bust my ass. And this guy's selling a painting for $150 million. They don't know that Pollock didn't sell that in his lifetime, by the way. And I think that ultimately that doesn't matter. And I completely sympathize with all of the frustrations that you're sharing that you have and that you're echoing that other people have. And I just think that it's an issue of schema. And yours is much more process-oriented. And I think that's because you have so much insane awareness of process as a painter. And my my schema is conceptual and historical. And so for me, it's not just a question of, well, I could do that. Yeah, but you didn't. But it's so rooted in the time that he did it. Because think about it. We're just coming off of a global crisis, World War II, where the epicenter of the art scene has always been Europe. Or historically, it's really been Paris, London, Italy. And now since the 
effects of the war have really altered that. The U.S. is emerging as the global tastemaker, and Pollock is at the helm of what it is that we're going to do that will conceptually rule the art scene and has irrevocably shifted the way that we create work. So what he did that was so disruptive, and it does emerge from surrealism. So yeah, he was the first person to articulate his vision in the way that he did, but it didn't come without precedent. His precedent is from the European greats, and it's from Dali, and it's from Miro. And so he's really just the next iteration. <laughs> uh, no? You don't? No, that's reaching. No, it's not. Yeah, because, because, da- because Dali was such a wonderful craftsman. And I, w- I never call Dali a great draftsman or a great painter. Like, he really isn't. Like, he's, a, he's great. Don't get me wrong. I love Dali. I'm a big Dolly fan. I think everybody goes through their Dolly phase, especially when you're smoking pot in college. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's so different and unique and surrealistic. But I would never say he's a great draftsman because he's not a real painter's painter. He's not a Zorn. He's not a Sargent. He's not a Corbet or a Rembrandt. He's a craftsman. He's wonderfully crafted. But I can't... I would say the opposite of Pollock. Pollock is completely trying to be energetically accidental or accidentally on purpose. And Dali is so, like, everything is completely figured out. Even his most surrealistic uh, works, to me, are so manufactured and profunctory in application. Sure, an academic in its surrealist application, I get that, but that's on the the surface. So Uh underneath, the spiritual drive of Dali is the same as the spiritual drive of Pollock, which is... To make money. No! Yes, for Dali it was. Oh, no, I'm thinking the ideology of the (laughs) painting itself, which is to shut off your logic, to shut off painting a representation of the world that is in front of you, Mm -hmm. and to tap into your subconscious, your unconscious. We did an episode on Freud, and we talked about how the mind is kind of like a iceberg, where what's above the surface is the conscious mind. And that's a tiny little piece. And then where that iceberg on the surface confronts the water is the subconscious. So that's just that little liminality. And then everything, that huge mass that's underneath, that's the rest. That's the truth. And that's our authenticity. And that is what Dali is trying to paint. The persistence of memory is his personal fear of sexual impotence. This is not a landscape that he witnessed. This is one that he viscerally felt. And so Pollock, he's just eliminating that academic application, and he is also painting the unfettered truth of who he was. So that's, that uh, is the way that I, I mean, connect that, him that, to surrealism. That is, a, that is a very intellectually mindful, smart analysis, 100%. I don't agree with you. But I think it's a great, you know what I mean? Because you're talking about a guy, let's go back to East Hampton where he's painting, right? And he's painting these splatters and he's got a cigarette in his mouth and his studio is locked. He doesn't let his wife into his studio uh, to look at his work. He doesn't want anyone to judge his work. He's got, a, you know, people come and go. But really he's, he's working in isolation out how all these contemporary artists say that they're working now, right? Undisturbed, uh, in solitude, drunk he's an alcoholic uh and he's he's completely out of his mind do you think that that state of consciousness being drunk smoking alone it, does that enable him to access 
that unconscious space in a deeper way? Or is he just throwing pain against the ground because he's drunk as hell out of his mind and he loves the energy of it? Right? There's a certain energy of it. There's a musicality to it. It's like boom, ka, da, 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 boom. And who knows what he's listening to? Right? That's probably adding to the fervor and excitement of these staccato crescendos, whatever. It's just, I love that. It's true. It's a performance. <laughs> like whatever it is, he's going, it's like he's mad. I don't know if he's really tapping into that space that you talk about so eloquently and beautifully, Lizzie, but perhaps he's just maddeningly in a fervor throwing pain around because he feels like he's an artist. But there is no one way to tap into that space. And for each person, there's individuation. And so for him, maybe it was that state of drunken release. I don't know. I love your introduction of music to the work because something that I really relate to when I see a Pollock is that it does feel like a performance. And that's right. one way that his work was propulsive to future artists mm-hmm. in an international space. He was really influential to these performance artists in Japan. And it's because he's dancing. He is walking around the canvas. He's walking in the canvas. There's no gentility of just standing in front of something and delicately pressing his wrist into the surface of the canvas weave. He is aggressively, forcefully moving around it. And nobody had really done that before. And it's important for those of you who who don't know that he stretched out his canvas on the floor. Mm -hmm. So he's working horizontally and then eventually repositioning that work in a vertical manner. And so to me, I see that as almost the shift from nature to culture, where we start out in evolution on all fours, and then eventually (laughs) we move to two legs. And I just see that progression as such a beautiful illustration of of that transition that we all made historically. And yeah, you're, (laughs) I know I I love your analogies, but this one's a little extra. So, and, and this is why, uh, we haven't even started by the way, with my extra analysis of Pollock, I could just go on and on and I will, No, but I'm saying, I feel like there has to be a wall of reason and that we have to hit. Like you can hypothesize, as much as you want, and you're probably going to give a better example than 99% of the art history aficionados out there in the world, and you make a very compelling argument, probably even way more compelling than Jackson Pollock himself. I think the reality is that, you know, I can't justify that because for me, I don't love the work, and I really do feel like my child can do it. My friend can do it. I don't feel like... I know when the experts look at Pollock, they look and they go, well, there's a certain movement. There's a certain energy. There's a certain feeling, a joie de vivre, a, a darkness, a, a calamity, something that's... Pollock is ornery, and you feel that in these paintings. Perhaps that's true. But I just look at it, and it's a splatter. It splatters. It's like, should I spill my coffee? Oops, I dumped my paint. That's an accident. (laughs) If I had a big canvas and I was going through a week in my studio, I'd get paint everywhere. I think by the end of the day, I could cut it out. And that would be as authentic as a Pollock would be. In fact, when we put this up online, we should put up my Jackson Pollock video that I talk about Pollock and I give my video analysis of making a Jackson Pollock. (laughs) Oh, no. Which I'm not looking and I'm just splattering paint in the background. (laughs) But, But you cannot argue 
the love that somebody has for something when they're feeling it. You know what I mean? Regardless of what it is. And this is a time, if we may go back to the East Hampton days of when Pollock was creating, he was taking his paintings, throwing them in the dumpster. He was taking his paintings and sometimes selling them for barely anything, sometimes $7,000, $9,000 when he was lucky. I mean, he was not a successful artist at this time. And he was definitely inspiring other artists around him who thought that he was really doing great stuff. There is no doubt in my mind that he was the first to do that on a large scale in terms of getting into the consciousness of artists, the gallery world, and the public eye. For sure. No doubt. But does Pollock belong in a museum? Pollock is one of the few artists who has his own room at the MoMA. His own room of Pollock's. Should we fill our museums with splatter, a whole room of our museum when there's artists out there that are starving, that are excellent, that deserve to share that wall space? You know, I think that there's room for all of it. I think that Pollock is such an exquisite example. Build museums, not jails. Sorry, just a moment. <laughs> just got, that just took a turn. Yeah. Um, but I think that he is really this elegant example of postmodernism because he is bringing together psychology and history and also awareness of European masters while putting this Americanized, very hyper-masculine spin on what he's doing. He's bringing in or anticipating performance and also non-objectivity, work that is not tethered to the actual world in the way that Jackson Pollock's is, is hard. It's really hard to look at a Pollock. And of course, I come up with these expressions of, you know, culture, nature to culture and the other ones that I'm going to say, it's because there's nothing that's narrative about the work. And so this allows room for analysis that may seem off the wall, but really is me tapping into my subconscious. And isn't that what Pollock is encouraging his viewers to do? By just completely dismantling our expectations in art, he's allowing psychological space. And so I really appreciate that. I think that he is more than deserving of however many rooms he gets. And another analysis that definitely comes from my own lens about bodies. So you mentioned that he would often have a cigarette when he's making his work, which is true. That's part of the narrative of a Jackson Pollock. And I think that there's something very ejaculatory about his work, these splatters. And I think that narrative is reinforced with the anecdote that he always needed a smoke after his work. And... I think that if you look at the general body of abstract expressionism, it is super hyper-masculine, very sexualized. And so for him to literally splatter his subconscious, his self, his truth onto a canvas, I think that there is a nice little body tie-in where it was such a sexualized event. Yeah, see, I think that Pollock has become, for the art world, like Van Gogh has become for the art world before that, became for the art world before that, which is the idea of an artist. Okay, so Van Gogh is disgruntled. Nobody likes his work. His best friend Gauguin is putting him down. He only has 
Teo, his brother, to rest his head on. He's in a psychiatric home. He's painting. He's cutting his ear off. He's alone. It's loneliness. It's angst. That's what people want to believe when they buy from a painter, that this tortured soul had to create. Flash forward, fast forward to Jackson Pollock, you get the same idea of what an artist is. He becomes the quintessential artist. He's alone, in solitude. Tortured. Tortured. He's demented. He's manic depressive. Uh, Am I wrong to say that he's... I don't think so. And he definitely died because of the residual effects of his depression. He died in a car crash? He did. He died in a car crash. He was drunk. And people suspect that it was a death by suicide. But no matter what, he was an alcoholic. Okay, so he 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 was an alcoholic. He was full of angst. He was just ornery, like, you know, masculine energy. And created in isolation. Like I said, he was very strong about keeping his wife out of his studio and and making sure that he was creating un- and I think that I think people love that. I think people love the idea of a Jackson Pollock. And the movie Jackson Pollock with Ed Harris. Brilliant. And Marsha Gay Harden. I yeah. love that but, movie. Yeah, and yeah, really And it feeds really... into the mythology of an artist. Yeah, right. but so does Basquiat, the movie. Oh, so does and, Andy and, and Warhol, think, every I, movie about but, him. <laughs> yeah, but I think the same thing of them. And Frida Kahlo. Yeah, I think the same thing. I think that the artist has superseded in their giantism and in the public consciousness of what we want an artist to be. We want an artist to be Van Gogh. We want an artist to be Pollock. We want an artist to be Basquiat. You have to be tortured. You have to be angst. You have to have like anxiety because there's a story there. Yeah, you say there's no narrative in his works, but the narrative is his personal life. And people cling to that. People love that. Just like they love tabloid gossip. We love TMZ. We love gossip. And we got to love the story of Pollock. But that's true for every artist post-1400 when humanism starts to enter the zeitgeist of aesthetics. And so next week, we're going to do an episode on Bob Ross. And people love him because he is the anti-Pollock. He is so cheerful and joyful. And so I don't think that we only want somebody no, but I, but, to but pee Bob on Ross their canvases. Is, but Bob Ross, I don't think that's a good example because Bob Ross is not selling for $150 million. I mean, you're, but he you're, would. Well, we can get into that's that. That's a next whole other. Week. Yeah, but I think that people adhere to the idea of what an artist should be. And oh my God, Jackson Pollock, he was so. Oh, he was wild. He was wild. He created. He, this guy was. He was dark. He, you could see. Can you see the darkness of his work? The same thing with Basquiat. Right. Basquiat was so. He was a heroin addict. I mean, like he was in the, from the streets. He was this Haitian brother from the streets. He was graffiti, but he was he was in the contemporary world, and he was. I mean, you know. And I think it's unavoidable. It really is. But I think that's part of the charm and the allure of a Pollock, and perhaps that's more to me what seems to be interesting and attractive than the work itself, which is fine. And you're right. You do get that with all kinds of people. I mean, look, Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, anybody that died, especially young, then you're really getting that because it's romanticized. Yes, right? absolutely. It's, it's really romantic. And when we see Pollock now in photography, it really looks romantic. I would, 
I don't, I hate Pollock. Fucking hate his work. I really do. But I wouldn't mind hanging a painting of, I mean, a the photograph. Hans yeah, yeah, the, yeah, a photograph of him smoking over his work because it's during the act of creation. And that feels powerful because it makes me go like, wow, he's creating. I don't like what he's creating. I don't, I would never buy that for $150 million and not hang. I wouldn't hang his painting on my wall, but I would hang a picture of him smoking a cigarette with his, because his studio looks like a chaotic, just fractal universe of artistry. And And I love that. There's equanimity to it. So it's chaotic, but there feels like there's still cohesion. And you're saying that you would put those famous Hans Namath photographs of him. I didn't even know who took it. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So (laughs) he, that I think is hero worshiping the artist to a certain extent, because that's, worshiping the process and that's wanting to see the artist in the pursuit of creating this work. And so I think that it is a productive part of the conversation, definitely, because we cannot avoid it. We want to know about artists, whether it's to amplify our experience with the work or whether it's to diminish it. We want to know. And I think with his work, especially since it's famous that he was tortured, famous that he killed himself or or died in this car accident, that that adds to the mythology yeah, surrounding. Yeah, famous that he, that he threw out his work in dumpsters all around. Famous right. that he just, he couldn't stand his work too. Like there's something about Famous his- that he cheated all the time, which probably reinforces my interpretation that there's something sexual, aggressive, and kind of haphazard about the masculine flows that manifest on the work. Mm-hmm. So we yeah. all intersect he- our personal knowledge of an artist yeah. with our reception of the work. And I think- that we should just end where we began, which is about the dynamism of having this kind of conversation. And the first time Pollock was ever written about in the U.S. was this big art piece in 1949, and there's a question. Is he the world's greatest artist? And it wasn't Pollock is the world's greatest artist. It's opening up that room for inquiry. And I think that's what we did. I effing love him. Yeah. You effing hate him. But yeah. we just had a dialogue about it questioning what we believe. Yeah, and I think that that's a testament to artists who are impactful as they are polarizing and they can make you think. And, and, and oftentimes when you hate somebody, it's close to loving them. And when you love somebody, it's close to hating them. So I think that you probably actually hate him and I probably love him. <laughs> <laughs> Everything said. Okay, guys. Thanks. Peace.